Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, if I were to tell you today that our speaker gyrates in circles that are occupied by men like Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig, and Haberhaus, these men who occupy the intellectual magisterium of the evangelical movement, or if I told you that he traveled and wrote books with Josh McDowell and spoke on platforms with Lee Strobel, or if I read all this stuff that was handed out at the leader's retreat about this man, after I got through, you'd say, so what? You know, that's what I'd say. <laughs> but I don't say, so what about Dave Sterrett? This is a man that Gordon and Sue and Barbara and I have known for many, many years. First met Dave when he was about 11 or 12 years old as we uh, traveled to Stanton and spent time in their home. Uh, Clay and Teresa are wonderful southern hosts, and they have a basement with a great bedroom that the Wrights and Garretts over the years often occupied. Did you know that first time I met Dave, we hardly even noticed each other, probably weren't even aware of each other, but as the years went by, we became more and more aware of one another. Uh, Barb had a special heart for Dave. We saw a young man who began as a seedling, grew into a sapling, and now is a tree. And I'm just not talking about how tall he is. But I'm talking in the spirit, the impact God is using him in the kingdom of God. Here's a young man that we knew when he was in his junior high and high school years, was struggling with his faith. Being a preacher's kid, like many preacher's kids, he wonders, am I who I am just because that's who my parents are? Do I really believe this stuff? How can I know it's true? He went through many, many struggles during those years. An outstanding basketball player, there were those who tried to make his identity a basketball star. He went to Oak Hill Academy, which is one of the premier basketball high schools in America. They won championships. Dave was All-State. When it was time to go to college, he was recruited by colleges, chose the Christian University, Liberty University, to go on a basketball scholarship. But there was something in his heart that was greater than basketball. Winning people to Jesus was more important than winning basketball games. And eternal priorities began to weigh upon him to the point that more and more he began to turn away from that area where he had great physical, physical talent and seeking for God to give him spiritual talent to be used in the kingdom. And that's happened. You know, apologists can either be people who like to win arguments or people who like to win folks to Jesus. This man is an apologist whose drive is to win folks to the Lord, and apologetics is a tool to do that. So we're privileged and blessed to have a young man that I can say is a man of character, a man of God. Let's welcome Dave Sterrett. his life, 
Um, you know, a lot of times that uh, Jim and Barbara visit uh, our home, and give us the instincts as a child. I would watch and, and uh, refresh their memories with the rites as well. But especially, uh, I think when Greg's visiting more often, and so those memories of a godly influence uh, came in at a young age. And there was times I was struggling, but it's helpful. And so remember. You all, there's young people looking at your example. You may not um, understand everything. You may not. Uh, oh, keep your voice to the microphone, please. Maybe. Yeah, I'm not getting any better. Oh, okay. Here we go. Test one, test two. Can we go with this one here? All right. We've got this. Let me just um, fix my shirt here a little bit. Sorry, y'all. Don't look. Turn your heads. No, I'm, just, I'm sorry. But uh, I just want to encourage you. You know, there's uh, our lives. There are people around us. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so that they may... See your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. And so I want to encourage you for all of you. I think you're uh, that example as well. And so today I do want to talk about this area of apologetics. What is apologetics? Well, it comes from a Greek word that means to give a defense or an answer for why you believe something to be true. Uh, This was used in the ancient times. When Socrates was put on trial, he was... was, um, they, they accused him of corrupting the minds of the youth. And he was questioning the gods that were so custom in that day. He was teaching them about absolutes and new ethics that they weren't used to. So they put him on trial. And he gave his apology, his defense. His best student, Plato, recorded this. And this is known as the apology. Well, several hundred years later, when the New Testament was written, it was written in Koine Greek, the common language of everybody. And the Apostle Paul used this same term to talk about the Christian faith. And for example, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I was out defending and confirming the gospel. When they went out and shared the gospel, they would have attacks against the faith and they would provide answers of why the resurrection was true. Other of the writers of the New Testament, Jude, for example, the half-brother of our Lord, wrote, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to uh, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so um, there are often objections of why we should do this. Well, let me just give you several reasons of why Christians, we need to use apologetics to give a defense of the faith. Seventy percent of all Christian students reject the faith once they go off to college. Now, the number one reason is because of intellectual skepticism. There was a survey done by a professor who was at the University of North Carolina, who's now at Notre Dame, Christian Smith. In his book, Soul Searching, they interviewed students independently, and the number one reason that came up was intellectual skepticism. Of course, there's other temptations as well, you know, the sex and the alcohol, the same things that they faced previously, and then also the lack of community that they had growing up and the accountability. But you combine those three things of temptation, the lack of you know, community, and 
often those doubts are much earlier, but now they feel the freedom to walk away from it. Also, there's a study uh, that was done in September of 2010 that showed that atheists know more about religion in the Bible than Christians. You don't believe me? Uh, Start asking your Christian friends about different Bible verses, then log on uh, to an atheist site or an atheist blog on Facebook and just start interacting with them. You will notice that on a popular level, they know more about the Bible. Now, however, the very best Christians we have are, are much more prepared than the very best atheists out there. Part of the reason this is so is because some of these atheists are, uh, are former, uh, they grew up in the church, they memorized scripture, they rejected it, so they're kind of familiar. And a lot of nominal churchgoers uh, are not that familiar with the scripture. Uh, they didn't have the training of memorizing verses that y'all have as you know, the youth here. And then they begin to uh, walk away. Atheism is uh, on the rise. However, as a whole, across the world, Christianity is on the rise much, much greater. All around the world, Christians are coming. uh, People are turning to Christ. Muslims are seeing dreams of Jesus. Great things are happening. Uh, And and so Christianity is growing. However, in Europe, in America, in the Northeast, but even uh, in in the South as well, uh, atheism is on the rise at the universities. And so we need to be prepared. As Jim mentioned, I grew up in a Christian family. And uh, that was a picture taken of me in my father's Bible class. They took that for the yearbook. I was sleeping. I received the worst grade that year. I did know Christ. I loved the Lord. But there was times I was apathetic, and there was times that I was kind of complacent in my faith. And I did struggle. Jim uh, mentioned that I went off to the school to play basketball. And it is true, I went there. Average about 60 points a game in warm-ups. Um, actual game, I sat the bench. People are like, what position you played? I'm like, left bench. And baseball played left out. But, um, but I went there. We had to go to church. We had to go to chapel. And um, there was chapels. It was a religious-affiliated school. I shared with the leaders this yesterday that the pastor would say different prayers. Like, dear Lord, some of us call you Allah. Some of us call you Jesus, trying to be inclusive of all people of all faiths. Now, this is very prevalent in our culture. Uh, for example, Diane Eck, who leads the uh, Religious Pluralism Project at Harvard, uh, says the same thing. This is the, Harvard, uh, the man, the uh, Reverend Harvard was, was a minister, to whom the, I think his first name was John, whom the uh, college was founded on. But yeah, hundreds of years later, now the religious head, Diane Eck, is an outspoken lesbian. Uh, her partner is a minister as well. She's a, she's a minister at the, at the church there. And this idea that there's multiple paths, they were to look at you, if you were to say, oh, no, they would look at you and say, how judgmental are you? Intolerant are you? Who do you think you are to think you're better? How exclusive are you to say that Jesus Christ is the only way? You Pharisee, don't, ju- don't throw the first stone. They would look right at you and say that. Well, this is what I experience. Now, this pastor at this church liked me as a person, and I I asked him, I said, do you mind if I ever shared a sermon? Well, I had never given a full sermon. He said, let me think about it. He came back to me and said, yes. And I thought, oh boy, I better get some help here. So I called my father, who's a minister, 
And I said, you know, I really want to van- I'm concerned that my friends, they don't know Christ. And this pastor is not telling them the truth. I would eat lunch every day with my Muslim friends, four or five friends who were from, uh, most of them were from Egypt. There was one in 6'9", basketball player from uh, Senegal um, who played at Auburn. And we would have these conversations. Well, my father said he would help me. So we developed this sermon about John 3.16. I wanted it to be kind of like Billy Graham. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting. No, it wasn't quite like that. But I, I started, I'm like, how do I do this? Well, I just started praying. I'm like, Lord, I don't know how, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a great king. I just hope that you will use me. Um, and so this name of the student named Scott came to my mind and he was on the campus. I had seen him around. I saw him in art. He was kind of quiet. I thought, the Lord's going to use me to lead him to the Lord. I thought that's what God was telling me. So I thought, I'm just going to go up to his dorm and meet this man. Try to throw out something about God to see how he rea- reacts. So I showed up at his dorm and said, hey, I'm, I'm Dave, and I just want to meet you. And um, I just started small talking, and I tried to throw out something about, yeah, Lord's really blessed me uh, lately. You know, just try to throw something out about God just to see how he would handle it. And he said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. I said, you? He's like, yeah, I've been praying that I would meet a Christian friend on this campus because no one, uh, no one really believes the way I do. We have Muslims, and then you have the pastor saying everybody's going the same way. And, and then everybody's, you know, uh, you know they don't believe the, the way I do. I'm like, oh, that's great. I've been praying for, you know, that God would use me too. Maybe we should have a Bible study. So we said, yeah, we'll have a Bible study. Well, we both had a lot of homework that night, and so we're like, we'll, we'll meet another time. Let's stay in touch. And so I went back to my dorm, and as soon as I got back, I just felt an urgency that I needed to go back there right then and have a Bible study. And so I thought, well, let me just grab my sermon notes that I'm working on. We'll use this. And so I showed up. I said, hey, I feel like God really wants us to have a Bible study right now. I've never done this before. But here's my, uh, can I practice my sermon for you? And then we could pray for one another. And and, uh, tell you what, your roommate, uh, roommate Jeff, uh, let's invite him to join us as well. So Jeff, the two of them joined, and I just kind of gave the sermon to both of them. When I was all done, his roommate Jeff was like, that's a really good sermon. When you're done, I'm going to come forward and give my life to Christ. I, I like it. I'm like, you know, I'm like, you, know you can uh, pray to receive Christ right now. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'll just wait. I'm like, no, you really should give your life to Jesus right now. That's a good tactic. Practice your sermon for your non-Christian friends. But anyway, uh, but anyway he prayed to receive Christ then. And about that time, a couple of the other guys walked by and they were like, what's, what's, what's Big Dave doing in here? And I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, because they weren't used to it. Because oftentimes this dorm had a particular, not their room, but the whole dorm had the worst reputation on campus. There's some students who had sneaked in you know, marijuana and other drugs. And they knew I was a Christian. They knew I was different. But they didn't know why I was up there. I'm like, hey, we're having a Bible study. Come on in. So I practiced this sermon for these two guys. And, um, and another prayed to receive Christ. Now this one guy kind of had a bad reputation on the on the campus, and he had gotten in a fight uh, with another one of my teammates, and he became a Christian. And then it kind of, you know, my teammates were like, well, what is Dave hanging out with this guy for? And so he prayed to receive Christ. And then I started practicing for other teammates, like the guy on the right-hand corner, Steve Blake. He plays for the, uh, for the Lakers. Those other three guys came after me. But it got kind of discouraging at times, too. Um, some of the guys who... Let me move that. Some of the guys who had prayed to receive Christ end up walking away. Some of my Muslim friends started showing up and asking questions. 
And I didn't know how to respond. I would try to bring up something about the Quran, and they're like, well, you, you know, you just speak English. You don't understand. I'm like, okay. Or, but, you know, and so we would have these conversations, and I thought, I really need to study the Bible. So I decided to go to a Christian school and study. And I just want to encourage you that you do not have to be the smartest person. I cer- certainly am not. Keep in mind that Peter was not the Apostle Paul. Paul had studied under Gamaliel. He had known philosophy. He had known law. He had a theology background. He knew all types of, of the Jewish theologies, but also compare, uh, comparison thought. Peter was just an ordinary fisherman. But yet Peter, all over and over, gave a defense. He gave an apology. He was the one who said, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Um, some of the objections, often Christians in some circles will say, well, I don't know if we need to do apologetics. I mean, that's for good for just a few people. Uh, it's not the most helpful tactic. Uh, we just need a love. So I want to take on some of the objections, some of the uh, apologies from uh, skeptics of Christians who say we shouldn't do this. Well, isn't answering questions getting in the way of the Holy Spirit? You know, we don't we need to just love people and let this Holy Spirit work. Why, why do we need to give reasons? One is the person who says we don't need to give reasons or answers, they're trying to give you a reason and an answer that we don't need to give reasons and answers. Like, for example, the person who tries to explain using scriptures that we shouldn't use um, apologetics. Well, and also it's just unbiblical. Over and over, there's scripture, for example, that tells us to do it. Peter said it. People say, well, we shouldn't get into arguments. Well, we need to be kind. We need to be loving. Uh, Peter says that. But at the same time, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we destroy arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Jude 3 says, contend for the faith. Isaiah 1 says, come let us reason. Paul said in Philippians 1, I was defending and confirming the gospel. So over and over we see this responsibility to defend the truth. Well, what about verses like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Does this mean that we don't have knowledge of God? No, over and over we do have knowledge of God. However, that knowledge is not infinite. Our knowledge is limited. But it does not mean that we, do not, that we have blind knowledge. The faith that God calls us to involves thinking. That's why in Hebrews it says, anyone who has faith in God must believe that he exists. So it involves and it starts with thinking. And sure, there are certain mysteries of the atonement of why an all-loving God would die for us or why God allows certain things in our life and suffering that we do not have the answers for. But that does not mean that we don't have uh, any answers. There are some things we do know. And so often in some circles, I find this idea that it is more spiritual when we don't plan things, when we don't think about things. I work with I Am Second, and people share their story. This one friend of mine, she said, you know, I I just sat in a chair. I had no idea what I was going to say, and then I said it. And we look, and we're like, hmm. You know, the Holy Spirit just took over. And, and people say that, you know, I, I just, I, I heard, I, one time I walked up to someone and said, you know, thank you for that talk. It was really good. And the person said, you know, um, it wasn't me. It was just God. And I'm like, 
No, I thanked you. If it was God, it would have been better than that, you know? So, and I just said you did a good job. Now, obviously, obviously the Holy Spirit work, works through us, right? But there's a difference between, I mean, sometimes we just need to say thank you, right? Um, we obviously, there are those times in which we are unplanned, like my story. I went back to the dorm. I did not have it all planned out, but yet there was an urgency to go back and share the gospel. So we do get excited about those. But I also think that we need to rejoice in those times in which you sit down with that skeptical friend of yours and you study a very hard book like Norm Geiser's I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Or you study a book by Lee Strobe or someone else and you dive into those answers. God uses both. The spontaneous, the unplanned, but also the Plan. All right, let's keep on going. Enough on that. Uh, there's also attacks out by, um, first of all, before we go here, let me, let's turn to Acts chapter 17. There's different purposes of apologetics. Apologetics, most of the time, uh, means to give a defense for the faith. But also there's uses not just in evangelism. When you have, all truth is God's truth. And at a very young age, as you prepare and teach your children, it's important that even at a young age, they begin to discern falsehood. When a teacher at their Christian school or non-Christian school will say something that may not be true, they begin to question, they begin to ask the right questions, and yet they can disagree in a way in which they still honor the authority. But oftentimes we do see the use in regard to evangelism. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is traveling. Verse 1, when they passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as it was his custom, um, Paul reasoned on three Sabbath days, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer from the dead. So these group of Jewish thinkers in this synagogue believed in the authority of the scriptures. So he's going to begin with the authority of the scriptures. In Berea, verse 10, Paul and Silas went to Berea. And this group was even of more noble character. They even had a higher regard for the scriptures than those of Thessalonica. Again, he reasoned with the scriptures... And they looked it up to see if what Paul had to say was true. That's in verse 11. Then we get to Athens. By mistake, some of the men uh, from Thessalonica had learned that Paul was preaching in Berea. And they started up. And uh, they also sent men to, and, uh, to escort Paul to Athens. While Paul was in Athens, it was almost, this was a thing that he was unplanned, but yet he had the a knowledge to understand falsehood. It says, let's, let's just read it here. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day by those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Monks this time, 
the two great thinkers of, of, of Greece, of the classical age, was Aristotle and Plato. Most of us today have still been influenced by their thought. Most theologians, whether it will be influenced, will be more Aristotelian or more Platonic. And you may say, I'm neither one. It's just the Word of God. Well, if, you sp- if I spend some time with you, I could tell you which one you lean towards. Um, we don't have time to go into that right now. But at this time, the writings of Aristotle were not as popular. So the two groups of philosophers that were the most prominent in that time were the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans, the greatest portion of writing that we have from an Epicurean philosopher is from Lucretius. Lucretius is very naturalistic, and some of the arguments that the new atheists used against God are taken right from him. For example, C.S. Lewis, when he was convinced of his atheism, he thought the arguments of Lucretius were better than that of Paul. Lucretius said, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see it. So even Lewis, when you read Mere Christianity, he's going to give his moral argument but he's not going to have strong conviction in the design argument. Even he's influenced uh, by Lucretius that if God had des- the design argument is weak because the design argument, if God had designed the world, people say that the design and the, and the you know, biology and the fine-tuning of the universe, if that points to God, well, look at all the disease. Look at all the mistakes. Look at all those. And so that was Lucretius who argued against design in the 3rd century. The Stoics were more pantheistic in nature. What is pantheism? Well, polytheism says that there's many gods. Pantheism says that there is one source of all. All is God. You're God, I'm God, we're all God. Now, oftentimes, pantheists are also polytheistic. That's why a Hindu, for example, the largest pantheistic religion, says that God is Brahman, everything is Brahman, but there's also into individual deities within this. Some of the Greeks, the Stoics, for example, were like this too. They believed that there was all one reality. The universe is God. You're God. I'm God. And you look within yourself and you find truth. We're all part of oneness. Turn off. Your senses are deceiving you. Um, You think you have it all figured out in your mind. You think you're revolving. You know, today, example, you think you're revolving around the sun. I mean, the sun is revolving around you. You're wrong. Your senses are deceiving. Turn off your mind, turn off your body, and just be. Okay, that is pantheism. Now, you laugh. One out of every three people in the world is a pantheist. The largest world religion is Hinduism, then it's Buddhism. Paul encountered it on them. He encountered the Epicurean, the naturalistic philosophers who the new atheists come from, and the, the Stoics who the pantheists come from. And what he's going to do is he's going to greet them very kindly and be nice to them. Let's get to his sermon here. They bring them to this Areopagus, this place where the philosophers would bring people even they disagree with, and they would question with them. If someone brought an idea that they disagree with, they wouldn't mock them or make fun of them or jab them as a person. They would begin to ask questions, and they would provide a case of this is why I disagree with you. But we're going to go ahead and give you some time to give your case. They thought, well, this Paul seems like a sharp guy. Let's give him the opportunity to talk. And then he stands up, and in perfect Greek, he begins to speak their language. He says, men of Athens, verse 22, I see that in, very, in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found this altar to an inscription to an unknown God. 
They were kind of like Elvis in a sense. Some of the Stokes were. Remember, Elvis had all the chains of, and, you know, he had the cross, and he had, uh, you know, he tried to incorporate all religions just to kind of, you know, keep everything j- checked just in case. Well, that's what they try to do with these altars. They try to have a God towards everything, these Stoics, just to keep safe. And there was one, they reasoned that there must be some unexplained eternal being that they don't know, and they said to an unknown God. So Paul says, I've seen every way you're very religious. That term can also mean superstitious. The the, uh, Epicureans, they didn't really believe that there was a God, but they went along with the custom of the society. They thought this order is good. Kind of like some politicians who really don't believe in God, but they thought, you know, I'm going to run in America. I better not. I better tell people I'm a Christian. I'm not saying present politicians. I'm just saying in general. All right. I'm just saying in general. I'm not saying it. I'm not going there. All right. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, um, for as I walked along, I saw your objects of worship, and I found an altar to an inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's going to shatter the worldview. He's going to say, no, God is not the universe. He made the universe. The God who made the world and everything into it. Up until this time, many of the Greeks believed that the universe is eternal. There's some Christians who still believe that today. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them. So he's going to take some truth from the Stokes. The determination. And yet, he's going to take the personalization as well. And then he's going to show how these two worldviews, there's a piece of truth in both of them, but they ultimately cancel each other out and they're both false. He determined the times set for them and the exact um, places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from us all. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets say, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. Now, look here. This is what he's going to do. The Stoics, for example, they believe that God uh, is the universe. The Epicureans did not really believe in God, but they said if God exists, he's so apart from us in a different world we don't know. More deistic. A deistic is someone who a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, but he's no longer involved. So he's going to take the Stokes, he's going to say this. And he's going to quote it in front of the Epicureans. For we in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets say, we are his offsprings. In other words, we're close to God. But then he says, to refute the Stoics, the Stoics believe that God was the table. God is the grass. God is the ground. God is stone. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when he heard of the resurrection, some of them sneered. This was not the attitude that a philosopher should have. Philosophers don't sneer. If they disagree with something, you question it. 
You point out the, uh, the logical contradiction, and yet they sneered at him. And so Paul is now showing that he's the one who's like Socrates. He's the philosopher, and they are like the immature, ignorant crowds who don't know how to refute him. They just make fun of him. However, this is the good news. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became his followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. One Baptist minister who criticized me for using apologetics, nice guy, he's got his doctorate of ministry, he said, well, Paul wasn't that successful on this trip. Well, often we got to realize that our approach and method, um, there can be a faithfulness that we have, but the, as far as the number of results or the number of people, that's the Holy Spirit's work. That's not up for us to determine. Uh, and I would say also, even by his own standards, people got saved. They believed. It might not have been as large of a crowd as when, when um, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and says, you know these miracles, and 3,000 were converted. But this was still, I believe, a very successful method. Well, there's a lot of best-selling books out that talk about the new pantheism. And I think if we can take and understand some of these principles from the Stokes and how to refute that, then it's going to help us when we hear pantheistic thought. I wrote the book, Oh God, A Dialogue on Truth and Oprah's Spirituality. The reason I chose Oprah is because she's picked over 20 books that have become New York Times best-selling books. I think as a woman, she's done a lot of good things, humanitarian efforts, and others. Seems to have a kind heart. But I'm, uh, I've been concerned over the years because she has given a platform to false spiritual teachers. Among them, for example, is the, uh, Mary Ann Williamson, who writes on Helen Schuckman's work, A Course on Miracles. Also, Eckhart Tolle's the book, A New Earth. Oprah had her webinar, two, two million people logged in. And all these books are pantheistic in nature. They will say that everything is God and God is everything. And um, Rhonda Burns' The Secret, for example, it says that God is everything and everything is God. And because of that, you control the universe through your thoughts, through what you declare in your mouth. God is the universe Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, one of her, Oprah, who says that uh, Eckhart is a prophet of our time, he says, you can say that about yourself. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. Well, in the story, oh God, there is a man who is dying, and his wife, who is a fan of the secret, and they had read it together, begins to read to him from the secret. You go to, this book was number one for a while, sold several million copies. Here's what the secret says. When people are completely focused on what's wrong in their symptoms, they will perpetuate it. The healing will not occur. Think thoughts of perfection. Illness cannot exist in a body that has harmonious thoughts. Know that there is only perfection and you observe perfection. You must summon that to you. Imperfect thoughts are the cause of all of humanity's ills including disease, poverty, and unhappiness. Declaring intent, I think perfect thoughts. I see only perfections. I am perfection. You can think your way to the perfect state of health, the perfect body, the perfect weight, eternal youth. Um, that is from the secret. Well, I'm not going to 
Well, in the story, this man dies. Doesn't work. Even though he's thinking those thoughts. I'm concerned often that pantheism comes up in church and some people will disagree with it, but they don't know how to respond. Some of these communicators are good. I mean, they're great speakers. I was watching one in Texas a while back, and he was on television, and he was speaking, and I thought, this guy's a good communicator. He had a large church, seemed positive, and he was, uh, he was saying something like, you are a child of the Most High God. Our tendency in life is to think on the negative. We like to dwell on the things that we don't have. You need to just start declaring in your mind what you want to be, and God will bring it in to fruition. So I thought, wow, this guy's pretty good, you know. I thought, you know, I'm going to go play a little basketball. I might as well just start declaring in my mind that I am LeBron James and ain't nobody stopping me. <laughs> so I got the basketball in my hands, and I'm thinking these thoughts. No, I'm not Dave Sterrett. Why? Because I'm thinking I'm LeBron James. Ain't nobody going to stop me. So I got the rock in my hand. I'm shaking up a couple fools. I'm going coast to coast. Why? Because I'm thinking in my mind, I am LeBron. But when I jump from the free throw line and try to dunk it, it doesn't matter how many positive thoughts I have. I'm still white, and I still can't jump. You know, real, you know, it just, you know, it just doesn't work. Well, I'm all about positive thinking, but there are limitations. For example, Scripture tells us that we need to be positive. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. However, we've got to be careful when we hear this to realize that we are not God. God is not, you know, Christian song. There's a Christian worship song. This guy is singing this song about I am, and God is everything. Is like I am the way, the truth, and life, and I am. And he's going on and saying all these things about Jesus. Then he says, I am the universe. No, God is not the universe. He, he made the universe. There's a difference. Um, and, and so we, we need to be uh, careful. Okay, let's keep going. One of the tools that we use is with uh, self-defeating is, is in the new spirituality is we're showing the person how their own claim doesn't live up to, to what it's claiming. Like, for example, if someone says there is no absolute truth, what's wrong with that statement? That's an absolute truth. It's like, it's, like, it's like, like, for example, when Oprah says, we shouldn't care. You know, this is not about doctrine. Because doctrine entails beliefs. Well, if someone says that, you can ask them, well, do you believe that? What, what do you mean? Well, do, do you believe that, uh, that spirituality should not be about beliefs? Yeah, I guess I believe that. Okay, so you have one belief. Don't you believe that God is the universe? Well, yeah, I'll believe that. D- don't you believe that there's just not one way, but there's multiple ways? Oh, yeah, I'll believe that. So you have a certain set of beliefs about God and about spirituality. That's doctrine. So you help that person to discover self-defeating statements even before you get to it. It's like they were interviewing Mandy Moore, actress, and they said, Mandy, what's one of your pet peeves? She said, I just can't stand it when people are so intolerant. Whether it comes to sexual preference or race or anything else, I just can't stand intolerant people. Well, if you're there, we're like, well, Mandy, aren't you being intolerant of intolerance, right? I mean, I'm thankful, Mandy, that Abraham Lincoln was intolerant of slavery, that Martin Luther King Jr. was intolerant of racism. I think intolerance can sometimes be good. What about you? Uh, I don't know. 
No, get into these conversations that all the time you hear these things. It was like when I was on Twitter the other day and two well-known pastors, they were just like saying, I just can't stand all this stupid negativity on Twitter. We just need to make a positive impact. I'm like, well, wait a second. Aren't, aren't you being negative? No, and, and also it says something like this. Um, I can't stand all the negativity and the haters on Twitter. Well, aren't you hating against the haters? I mean, I, res- I responded something like that. All right. Here's another one, words. People say, well, we just can't use words. Um, like, <laughs> no, Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart Tolle in his book, A New Earth, says, words, as soon as they are used, cast a hypnotic spell on you. And Oprah said, you know, that's why we need to just stop talking and have our moments of being. Just, let's just be quiet. Let's just soak it up, you know. Let's just turn off our minds and, and be. Well, the thing is, is he's inconsistent. One, he writes a book of 316 pages full of words. And I'm still waiting for that Oprah moment where she doesn't use words. I mean, she always has something to say. I mean, sometimes it's, sometimes it's good. Now, this is not a bash against Oprah. I think she's a great woman. I'm just saying we need to be aware. And all, I mean, even Christian worship songs, we buy into this too. And a worship leader stands up for like 10 minutes. I've been to these, some of these things, and the guy's saying, So I'll let my words be few. Jesus, I am so in love with you. And then he just sings for like 10, I'm like five minutes go by, 10 minutes go Wait a second, you're singing a lot of words indescribable, uncontainable, you set the stars. Now, obviously, our description of God is not going to be perfect. Obviously, our language and our word use will be limited. Our God talk is not perfectly corresponding. It's not univocal. Neither is completely different. It's not equivocal either. But our positive God talk does correspond to reality. We can't say truths about God that are true. It is analogous. And so I think, now those are both good songs. Don't, um, don't boycott that. Um, just maybe you're a lot of young people like the new worship leader. I will never say never. But, um, that, that, oh, but that's a new word. Maybe you can boycott him. But anyway, sorry. Uh, but anyway, all in our culture, we will hear these self-defeating, self-refuting statements um, over and over again. And uh, let's keep going. Let's move on. So what I'm trying to say here is build a foundation of truth. Help that person to discover where they're going wrong. Build a foundation of truth. Establish that. And once someone agrees that there is truth, then take the conversation to Christ. Then take the conversation to God. Okay? Because what's going to happen if, if someone does not believe in Jesus, when you, when you st- if, I mean, for example, if you start quoting Bible verses to them, um, they will often embrace like a relative. They will look at you and say, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. So the key there is to, to, to often expose them to say, well, aren't, don't you believe absolutes about certain things? Help them to understand that there are certain absolutes. Don't you agree that 2 plus 2 is 4? Well, yes. And so help them to understand. And then move the conversation towards God. Do you believe that God is the universe or do you believe that God created the universe? Well, if you believe that God is the universe, then there's certain problems with that as well. If you believe that God is the universe, Eckhart Tolle says, 
you're supposed to go through this process of awakening. Buddhists call it enlightenment. But that implies change. But this Brahman or God or whatever you call it, whether you're Hindu or Buddhist or this being, is supposed to be changeless. Well, how, if you're a part of God, go through this process of change when you're, you're supposed to be part of the changeless God? Help them to understand. Then take the conversation to Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, if they don't get it, they're going to think the miracle of the resurrection is foolishness. But if God exists, if God is the one who created the universe out of nothing, if Genesis 1-1 is true, and we can give arguments for God's existence. Everything that begins to exist needs a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe needs a cause. If God caused this universe to come into existence, then miracles are possible. If God created the water, it's not a problem for him to turn the water into wine. It's not a problem for him to walk on water. Now, the, most, the core miracle to take them to is the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's essential. Why? Because Jesus did claim to be God. He claimed uh, attributes of deity upon himself. But how did he verify those claims? Well, through his resurrection. Jesus told people, I'm going to die, and on the third day I will r- rise again from the dead. And this gives us hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope, no matter what we're going through. Philosophers have tried to solve this problem about what happens to the body after you die. And the resurrection of Christ gives hope like nothing else. The resurrection of hope gives me motivation to get out of bed every, every morning and live life to the fullest. Because we realize that this life is not all there is. We realize that this life is temporary. Um, so what happens to the body when one dies? It goes into the grave. Now, philosophers have often speculated about this, about what happens. Is there a resurrection? The new spiritualists will say, no, we all just turn into one. The atheists will say nothing will happen. Socrates, for example, the Greeks, they believed that the soul would live on. Uh, Plato believed that the soul would live on as well. Many Christians believe also your soul will live on as well. But oftentimes, Christians have embraced a negative view towards the human body. C.S. Lewis quoted Plato and said, uh, you are a soul, you have a body. You're only a soul, you have a body. I believe that you are both soul and body. Now let me provide a case for this. Um, well, let me just say there's other reasons. For example, Thomas Hobbes believed in materialism, not in the bling bling, you know, I got my cash money, but all of reality is made of matter. Uh, and what we have as a rational soul does not exist. That's what the atheists believe. Parmenides was another pantheist. He was more rigorous than the uh, Stoics. He believed that everything is one. Uh, your individual body is an illusion. And so you, you go on. Well, I mean, here's the thing. For example, he would say, um, I mean, how many times have our senses deceived us? We thought that our bodies were telling us something, but yet, but yet our bodies told us wrong. So you would give those type of arguments. And again, remember, about one out of three people in the world is a pantheist. Uh, amongst the Jewish uh, theologians, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Thanks for, uh, for courtesy laughs. Yes. All right. Um, but... No, they did. And remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would debate this amongst each other. And at one time, the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they tried to trick him. It says the Sadducees who believed in no resurrection said, um, Jesus, um, you believe in the afterlife. 
They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. Even though there's, um, and they came to him and they said, uh, there was this um, woman who was married and um, the man died. And so his brother married her and he died. And after that, his other brother married her and he died and so on. You remember the story, right? And uh, they're like, Jesus, so when they all get to heaven, who's she going to be married to? In other words, Jesus, you believe in the afterlife, you believe in the resurrection, but you also uh, kind of say that marriage is between one man and one woman, so are you advocating polygamy? Or, you know, and so this is a reductio ad absurdum argument. They're trying to make Jesus look ridiculous. In other words, give up your... What's your basis, Jesus? Either you're going to, if you say, uh, yeah, they all go to heaven, then um, you're advocating polygamy in heaven. Or you're going to, uh, you know, or, or what are you going to do, advocate divorce? Or you have to deny that there is no afterlife. There is no resurrection. And Jesus, I mean, there's, there's all these passages, for example, in Daniel, that it speaks of the afterlife. Um, other prophecies that talk about the resurrection of life, but Jesus went straight to their core verse. He says, have you not heard, have you not read uh, that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Deuteronomy 6? I, was, I mean, that was like their core verse. They only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So he didn't pick from Daniel. He picked from their core. It's like going up to a Baptist and saying, have you heard of John three sixteen? Yes, I preached on that. And so he picked their core verse. So the verse says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and uh, Jacob. I'm the God, the living, not of the dead. Okay, and then the other group, the Pharisees, they had it right. They, and in this, they believed in a bodily resurrection. But they had no proof. They had no literal proof. And the beautiful thing about it was, it was speculation. They had correct theology on this. But the great thing about Jesus compared to any other thinker, is he didn't just talk about the resurrection, but he demonstrated it. I mean, um, he cleared up the confusion. Many people rejected him. He was a great teacher. He was compassionate. He made outrageous claims. And he said things like this, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, because I live, you also will live. So what makes Jesus' teaching about the resurrection so different? One, our decision with what we do with him determines how that resurrection will take place. Because the Bible speaks of two resurrections. That Now, that does seem really far out. I mean, some of you might think, you know, I'm not sure if I want this same body. Well, your body will be transformed. I'm not sure if it's the same DNA or, or what, but... There will be a miracle that takes place, and your same body will be resurrected and yet transformed. So it'll be same but different. But it will, there will be a similarity there, and it will be a miracle. And remember, if Christ can create the universe out of nothing, then it's not a problem for Him to take existing material and do another miracle. Uh, second, Jesus told us that He would physically prove for us what will happen. I mean, think about it. hypothetically. 
Jesus could have fulfilled the wrath of God, the propitiation, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the death of the cross for the sins of the world. Been buried in a tomb. God could have destroyed that body and given him a completely different body. It's not what happened. That same body that had died was risen again. God demonstrated his victory over death, but he also told us, because I live, you also will live. That there will be hope no matter what you're going through, no matter what suffering, if you've lost a loved one, no matter what we experience, that there is hope that one day our bodies will be raised again. And we'll be able to see Christ face to face. Well, how do we know that the New, Testament's, New Testament writers wrote the truth about the resurrection? Let me go through these four things. One is early historical documents. Early historical documents. The the four gospel accounts that we have are the most accurate accounts of Christ. There were Gnostic gospels that were written earlier. The earliest of those was Thomas. Uh, Thomas um, was not written by the real Thomas. But this is one of those Gnostic gospels that critics like Elaine Pagels of Princeton will bring up. Say it's just so beautiful and it's more inclusive and tolerant towards women. But if you read it, there's some wacky sayings in there. Like, for example, it says, Blessed is the lion, for he will enter. Blessed is the lion. The what? The who? And, and there's some things. Just read it sometime. When I taught 12th grade students, I have my students read some of these. Um, uh, there were things like, for example, that Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to make all the females male. Let Mary leave us, because I will make her male. It's in the last part of the Gospel of Thomas. Now, one thing that we can know about this is that they borrow from the gospel accounts that were written earlier. The, er, the, the gospel accounts were all four written in the very first century. Another thing we can do is when my professor um, in, in college, Gary Habermas, who's one of the experts in the resurrection, he's probably one of the top three in the world, um, he says we can use the minimum facts approach. What that means is just kind of a, an apologetic approach to take what the most liberal, agnostic, unchristian uh, scholars admit to be true and they agree upon. Now, of course, just because the majority of people agree on something doesn't make it true. However, this is just a tool that we can use to say that even the critics acknowledge these things. Okay, one thing they do is they admit that Paul was the author of his letters, and the most liberal of them acknowledged six of those. Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and some of them Romans. In First Corinthians chapter 15, let's turn there. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received to you, I passed on as of first importance, that Christ died according to our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And after that, he appeared to Peter, 
and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren. At the same time, most of them are living, though some have fallen asleep. And last of all, he appeared to me. No, also, then appeared to James, and then also to the other apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me, to the one abnormally born. In this letter, Paul says, For what I received to you, I already passed on to you. Some scholars debate whether Christ died 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. For this, it really doesn't matter. But they suggest that Paul could have received this material at two different times, either in Damascus or in Jerusalem when he met Peter and James. And most scholars date this between two and eight years of the resurrection actually taking place. That this was preserved. Remember, most scholars agree that Paul was the author of these six books between 50 A.D. and 60 A.D. And that, uh, that he previously received this material. There's other portions of Scripture that seem that was in existence before Paul actually penned it. Like, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself. There was a poetic nature, and when the church got together, they would almost say it kind of like a, kind of, kind of like a creed, kind of like a song. They would get together very early when they would meet in churches, house churches, and recite these. What's so fascinating is even by the time of this le- letter, that leads to the many eyewitnesses of the appearances. Paul says, and he adds on this, he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren, at the same time, so you've added up, that's 515. There's also some dispute if this includes women or not. So it could have been more like 1,000. And they believe that it was almost kind of legal. They did not mention the women in this the creed. So it could have been over 1,000 people that Jesus appeared to at one time. And then Paul says this, most of them are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, you go check it out. Another reason that we believe that this is true is because of the principle of embarrassment. If you look at the literature itself of the New Testament gospel accounts, there are things that in that culture would have been embarrassing. Like, for example, in the gospel accounts, it shares that the women were the first to discover the empty tomb and that the men were afraid and fled. That one of the core leaders of the church that for a long time many Christians believed to be the Pope, we believe that he was one of the leaders, one of the apostles, Peter, at the time of Christ, when he was arrested, right before his crucifixion, he got scared in front of a servant girl, and she said, you're one of his disciples. And he's like, nah, nah, I'm not. And he started, he started calling down curses. He started, it seems like he was kind of cussing out this little girl almost. Now, if you're a group of men, and you're about to make up a story about yourselves, and you're a court leader, are you going to include these embarrassing details? Well, I cut off this guy's ear, but then it was Jesus who put it back on. But then when I got back into the, the garden, I got scared again, and I started cussing in front of this little servant girl. I mean, you're probably not going to include that. Are you going to include that you fled and that it was the women who first discovered the empty tomb? No, if you're men, you're going to be like, nah, we were the soldiers up in this place, and the ladies were scared, and we, we want to bring some protection to them and make sure we were there. No, that's not what happened. They said the women were the first to go to the tomb. In that culture, it was, even, it, was, it, it was much more embarrassing for a man 
in that culture. Um, because women didn't even have testimony in the court of law. Lastly, was a multitude of changed lives. If you look at this list, you look at some of the names. For example, uh, James. There was also Jude. James became a leader in the church. James did not believe in the resurrected Christ. Um, but he, I mean, he, I'm sorry, he did not believe Christ was divine until he saw the resurrected Christ. Y'all call me out if I say something heretical like that. Y'all speak back to me, all right? If I say something heretical, that's a, that's a mistake. Y'all shout back to me. No, he did not believe that Christ was God or divine or the Messiah until the resurrection. He was the brother of Jesus. Some people say, well, how is that possible? He was the brother of Jesus, and he didn't believe he was God until the resurrection? Um, well, one, I mean, do you, does anybody else have an older brother who thinks he's God? I mean, anybody in there? Right? But also, you know, we remember that Jesus, um, Jesus didn't perform his first miracle until Cana, right? So growing up, he didn't perform a lot of miracles. It, it says in John 2 that his first miracle was turned the water into wine. And even with that, it was kind of done secretly. So it was not until his, and he could have been in his early 30s at that point. He was about 30. He was probably a little bit er, uh, older. But he was not until his early 30s until he did his first miracle. Um. So uh, I just I just thought of something random. I'm 30 now, and uh, yeah, that's you know it gives us hope that you know uh, my previous 30 years was now. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I used to teach in the classroom, so I used to ramble for a little bit. So I got to wrap things up, right? Be all in right now. Wrap up. Well, let me just uh, end with this quote. Peter Kreft said, "Why would the apostles lie?" they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, martyrdom, hardly a list of perks. Let me um, end here with 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's uh, thank the Lord. Thank you. We we thank you, God, that Jesus Christ is alive. We thank you we don't serve a dead God. We thank you that this is not blind faith or blind hope, but we thank you that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you for that motivation. And so when our bodies are suffering, when we lose lost ones, help us to have hope that we can know certain truths. The truth is not just relative. It's not just abstract. But truth is absolute. And anything that is contrary to it is false. We think it is true that the New Testament writers accurately recorded about your son. So, Father, we pray that we would not just know about him, but that we would grow in both wisdom and a heart towards you, that we would have a love relationship with you. We thank you that you are the God who is passionate about a relationship with, you, with us. And, Lord, if there's anybody here who is missing out on that relationship, Lord, that they're selling for less than your best, I just pray that they would sense that God loves them, that this is not just um, far out, far out and and some, something made up, but it is true. 
and that they can know and experience that truth. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.